Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah chapter 12. And tonight, our lesson is Jeremiah questions God. Jeremiah questions God. And I know that none of us ever do that, so we're just going to look at Jeremiah and see what is his problem tonight. No, just kidding. But, um, you know, there were two conspiracies that God had taken care of. One conspiracy was of the men of Judah to disobey the covenant that God made with them and to resist the forms that were led by King Josiah. Back in chapter 11, verses 9 through 17. The second conspiracy was of the people in Jeremiah's hometown of Anathoth to kill him in order to silence God's word. They didn't want to hear the message of God. Chapter 11, verses 18 through chapter 12 here, verses 1 through 6. Both of these conspiracies then led to a third crisis that threatened Jeremiah's own faith in God. And we'll see that here in the first six verses. This left Jeremiah struggling with a theological crisis. The French mystic Madame Guyon wrote this, In the beginning of the spiritual life, our hardest task is to bear with our neighbors. In its progress, with ourselves, and in its end, with God. Jeremiah couldn't understand why a holy God would allow the false prophets and the unfaithful priests to prosper in their ministries while Jeremiah, being a faithful servant of God, was treated like a sacrificial lamb. Remember in chapter 11, verse 19, he says, Lord, it's like you're leading me to to a slaughter. And as we start chapter 12 here, we come to a very evil and dark time in the life of the nation of Israel And the only light that was left is Jeremiah. King Josiah has been killed. Jeremiah has been forced to leave his hometown of Anathoth. And evil men are now on the throne. You know, it seems that things only get worse. And many times we experience that in our own life as believers. And Jeremiah says, Lord, can we talk? Can we talk about what's going on in my life? Because Jeremiah wants to know why God's allowing certain things to happen. And I think we've probably all wanted to have that talk with God or had that talk with God. And we've asked them the big question, why? Jeremiah looks around. He sees that his very best people who are suffering, the most spiritual people seem to be having more trouble than anybody else. And we all wonder why God allows this. Even Asaph questioned God when he said in Psalm 73, 1 through 5, Lord, the wicked seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not overwhelmed with problems like everybody else. And boy, isn't that the truth? We walk with God. We're we're doing the best we can. We're doing what we can for God. and, And it seems... We just seem to have more problems than anybody else. The heathen walks around, they're having a good time, things are going well. But until Asaph said, I went into the sanctuary, I saw their end. They might be having a wonderful time here, but when it's all over, it's going to be the opposite for them. Jeremiah just couldn't understand why a holy God will allow their false prophets and the unfaithful uh, faithful priests to prosper in their ministries while he, being a, sa- a faithful servant of God, was being treated unfairly. Now let's listen to Jeremiah as he talks to the Lord about all of this. Let's begin now with verse 1 of chapter 12. 
And Jeremiah says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you. Notice, let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? The word plead here means to contend legally. And even though Jeremiah had no legal complaint that could be brought against God, Jeremiah could ask legal questions to the righteous judge. He says, Lord, let me ask you, why does the way of the wicked prosper? And boy, is that a question that's been asked a lot in Scripture and a lot today. Job asked that question. The psalmist tried to understand that question. Habakkuk, Malachi, they all asked that question. The covenants that God made with the Jewish people taught that God blesses those who obey and judges those who disobey. But in real life, it seemed just the opposite. How could a holy and loving God let such a thing happen? Verse 2. You have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. Jeremiah says it seems like God was on the side of the wicked. You've planted them, Lord. They've taken root and they've prospered. They succeed in their schemes, but their hypocrisy is so obvious. He says, your name is on their lips, but far from their mind. The rebellious leaders of Israel often use godly phrases like, as the Lord lives. Kind of like many might say, oh, praise the Lord. They use godly phrases like, as the Lord lives, but without any commitment in their minds. God, how can you let this kind of thing go on? Why don't you do something? Verse 3. But you, O Lord, know me. You've seen me. And you've tested my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. Jeremiah asked God to show him something that proved he cares about moral values by clearing his name for the wrongs that have done to him. Jeremiah said, I know what you can do to make me feel better, Lord. Make them pay for the way they live. Make them pay with their lives, like sheep marked for the slaughter. He's saying it's only fair. He says the men of Anathoth were plotting to kill me like a lamb on the way to the slaughter. So, Lord, why shouldn't you do the same thing to them? See, Jeremiah, he's... He's wondering about what's going on here. He's all bummed out over this. He's discouraged and he's sad. And he cries out to God. Notice in verse 4. How long? How many times have we asked that question? How long, Lord? To whatever you might be dealing with or going through. He says, how long will the land mourn? And the herbs of every field wither. The beasts and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there. Because they said he will not see our final end. God's answer to Jeremiah and to you and me today is one that we should accept. Because it's the best answer we have. God says, I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Rest in me. Jeremiah said in verse 1 that God was righteous. And it's easy to agree with what God says as long as the bad isn't happening to you. But when the affliction comes to your life, we sound like Jeremiah. I know you're righteous, Lord, but can I talk to you about what you're doing? Whatever God is doing today, 
No matter... No matter how questionable it might be, we need to remember he's right. And one day we'll be able to see. And understand someday. See, that's where faith comes in. And we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't walk by our circumstances. Jeremiah stands alone for God. Jehoiakim was a corrupt ruler, and he's on the throne. Things are getting worse, and Jeremiah wonders what's going to happen. What is happening? God has already assured Jeremiah that he's going to take care of the situation. In chapter 11, verse 16, God said, But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. And he's talking about that once beautiful olive tree that he planted. He says, one day I'm going to set it afire and the branches will be consumed. God says to Jeremiah, I'm taking care of this. I will deal with this. God has a plan that goes way beyond the things that Jeremiah could see. And here's where the people's wickedness lies. God said that he will not see, or Jeremiah said he will not see, they will not see our final end. And there was... They're saying, God doesn't know what we're doing. God doesn't see what we're doing. They're saying, God is, you know, God is far from their mind. They talk about God but, because they say, how does God know? See, that's where their, where their wickedness was. They, they were saying, God doesn't see what I'm doing. He doesn't know what I'm doing. Look at verse 5 now. Jeremiah, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of teeth in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? God's answer to Jeremiah wasn't quite what he expected. This is what God is really saying to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, if racing against mere men makes you tired how will you race against horses and if you stumble and you fall on open ground what will you do in the thickets near the jordan things may look bad to us today but they're going to get worse that's what he's telling jeremiah we need to get this into our heads and truly understand this and knowing this will help us to draw closer to god He doesn't explain all the details to us like we'd like him to. But he does tell us that we can trust him to always do the right thing. Genesis 18.25 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? In Revelation 15.3, Great and marvelous are your works. Just and true are your ways. In Revelation 16.7, True and righteous are your judgments. Psalm 92, 5, O Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. God's focus here wasn't on the wicked. It was on his servant, Jeremiah. Like many of us do when we're suffering, Jeremiah was asking, how can I get out of this, Lord? But he should have been asking, what do you want me to get out of this? 
See, God doesn't allow us to enter into trials and tribulations just for the sake of God hasn't got anything better to do. And many times we ask God, Lord, how do I get out of this? When we should be asking, Lord, what do you want me to get out of this? Teach me. Show me. We're always wanting God to explain things to us like, like little kids. Why, why, why? Warren Wiersey said, God's people don't live on men's explanations, but on the promises of God. Understanding explanations may satisfy our, our curiosity of wanting to know. It might make us knowledgeable people. But taking hold of God's promises will build our character and make us better servants. And that's the purpose of the trials and tribulations that we go through in life. God's answer to Jeremiah in chapter 5 and uh, verse 5 here gives us three important truths. First of all, the life of godly service, it's not easy. It's not easy to live the Christian life. It's like running a race. And Paul used a similar figure in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. If Jeremiah would have stayed a priest, he probably would have had a comfortable and safe life. But the life of a true prophet was just the opposite. He was like a running man. Running a race and having a hard time keeping up. The second truth is the life of service gets harder and harder and not easier. Jeremiah had been running with the foot soldiers. And had kept up with them. But now he'd be racing with the horses. In spite of his hardship, he'd be living in a land of peace. But now he'd be tackling the thick jungles of the Jordan River where the wild beasts laid in wait. His heart had been broken because of the attackers, the attacks of outsiders, but now his own family would start coming against him. The third truth in verse 5 is the result of the other two. The life of serving God gets better as we grow more mature. Each new challenge, and in verse 5, it was the horses to the jungles to the opposing relatives. Those things helped Jeremiah to grow spiritually and develop his faith and grow in his ministry skills. The easy life turns into the hard life in time. Because you see, the easy life gets in the way of maturity and growing. It's the difficult life that challenges us to develop our spiritual muscles and to get more done for the Lord. Phillips Brooks, Philip Brooks, the Bible commentator, said this. The purpose of life is the building of character through truth, and you don't build character by being a spectator. A lot of Christians are spectators. They're not in the race. They're not running the race. You have to get in the game. You have to run with endurance the race that God sets before you. And you have to do it according to God's rules. You see, this is what Jeremiah needed to hear when he was questioning God about what was happening in his life. Why, Lord? Why are you allowing this? It's what we need to hear tonight. The Scottish, the Scottish preacher Hugh Black said, he needed to be braced, that is reinforced, not pampered. There's no growth without challenge, and there's no challenge without change. You see, as we get older and more set in our ways, we resist change. 
Many people resist change, forgetting that without the challenge of change, they're in danger of deteriorating spiritually, mentally, and, and, and physically. You see, God wanted Jeremiah to grow just as he wants us to grow. Gilbert K. Chesterton put it this way, the fatal metaphor of progress, which means leaving things behind us, has utterly obscured the real idea of growth, which means leaving things inside of us. God was concerned about the development within the prophet Jeremiah, not just the difficulties that were going on around him. God could handle the problem people in Judah. But you see, God couldn't force his servant Jeremiah to grow. Only Jeremiah could choose to do that. Only he could choose to grow by staying in the race. Accepting the new challenges and and in doing so, he would mature in the Lord. And while we are in this world, we must expect problems. When we got saved, God did not promise us an easy road to walk. And when you hear people say, hey, come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved, forget it. That's when they begin. That's where they begin. Jesus gave us this promise. These are the kind of promises we don't underline in our Bible. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. He didn't say you might, you will. But then he gave us the encouragement, be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. Our life is a race. It is a warfare. Outside is the enemy's territory. It is not a playground. And we need to remember that. A lot of Christians think the world, the world is a playground and they go out to play. Satan is setting booby traps out there. He's setting minefields. He's out there. He's got his warriors out there and he's ready to attack. We are in, in danger of being run down. God's method is to usually start with smaller trials in our life. But we need, to get, we need to wise up and expect greater trials than, we've, than, than any we've ever met before. We should be very concerned about being ready for such trials as you see what's going on in this world tonight. The things that are happening in this world. We should be very concerned about being ready for such trials and to think about what we should do in them. How will we keep our integrity? How will we keep our peace when we come to those growing trials? We have to be like Joseph. When Potiphar's wife seduced him, he ran immediately. Because Joseph had a a, a right-on relationship with God, and Joseph knew, and he had planned for whenever that, something to that like that happened, whenever that trial came in his life, he didn't have to stop and think about it. Oh, man, what do I do now? He had such a right-on relationship with God that he knew before it ever happened, when I, if I, and when I get into that position, I'm gone. He took off. We need to know beforehand, because it's coming. We need to plan for it. In order to prepare us for more and bigger trials, we should be concerned that we do well in the smaller trials. That's what chapter 5 is all, verse 5 is all, that's what God is telling Jeremiah in verse 5. In order to prepare us for more and bigger trials, we need to be concerned about that we do well in the smaller trials. 
to keep, our, to, to keep up our spirits, to hold on to the promises of God, to stay on the right track, and to keep our on the prize so that we can run the race. In other words, the importance of God's answer to Jeremiah in verse 5 is that the worst is still to come. If we fail in the lesser trials, if you're, if you're wearing out, Jeremiah, just, just racing with the mere men, what are you going to do when you start to race the horses representing the bigger trials? How will we manage the bigger problems if we, if we fail in the lesser ones? And then after letting this truth sink into Jeremiah's mind, God tries to prepare him for the future events that he was going to experience. And he warns Jeremiah not to even trust his own family or neighbors. Look what he says in verse 6. Jeremiah, for even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. Jeremiah, even your brothers, members of your own family, have turned against you. They plot and they complain about you, Jeremiah. Don't trust them, no matter how nice they talk to you. This showed Jeremiah how totally alone he was. Jeremiah was alone. He was against the whole land. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, they shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, also he cannot be my disciples. In other words, Jesus said, we have to be careful that no other relation is put above God and takes away our duty to him. God used what Jeremiah said and did speak to the people of Judah and warn them about the terrible judgment that was coming. They were comfortable in their false security. They were encouraged by the false prophets and the leaders and the people of Judah. They were living in a dream world. They were so sure that nothing could happen to the holy city of the the temple. And just like Jeremiah had to forsake his family and his friends because they betrayed him, God is forced to forsake his people because they betrayed him. So God's grief over Israel is like Jeremiah's sorrow over his own family. What a sad thing God had to say in verse 7. Notice, God said, I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. He said, I've forsaken my house, the temple. That that was his palace. But the people had polluted it, forcing him to leave. Leave. Now, where's his temple now? It's here. Our temple is this body. His temple is this body. And God can't live in a polluted heart. A polluted heart chases out. Again, he can't can't live in a dirty vessel. He's forced to leave. He says, my people who I took so much pleasure in, my people who I took care of, I now let them go from my protection. He says, and now they're vulnerable to their enemies. God loved them so much 
They were precious to him, and they were more special to him than any other people. And he mentions this to emphasize their sin by returning hatred. They return hatred for his love. And now they're experiencing misery because they were forsaking themselves from the favor of the one that had such a kindness for them. And it also justifies how he's dealing with them because of their hatred for his love. God never looked for a reason to punish them. If they would have behaved themselves with any reasonable decency, he would have made the best of them because he loved them so much. But they behaved themselves so badly that they provoked him to turn them over to, his, to their enemies, to leave them unprotect, unprotected and to become easy targets for their enemies. But what was the fallout God had with the people that had been so dear to him for so long? They had spiritually degenerated so terribly. Verse 8. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me. Therefore, notice, I have hated it. He says, they became like wild animals. Stay as far away from them as possible. God heard their sins in heaven. He says, my people, my chosen people have roared at me like a lion in the forest. They cry out against me by the threats they made to kill my prophets that speak to them in my name. And what's said and done against them, God takes as said and done against him. You see, when the enemy comes against you, they're coming against God. When people come against you, they're coming against God. He said they blasphemed his name, they opposed his authority, they defied his justice, and they cried out against him like a lion in the forest. Those who were the sheep of his pasture had become uncivilized and just ravenous like wild lions in the forest, and God hated it. Verse 9. My heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. The vultures all around are against her. Come, assemble all the beasts of the field. Bring them out to devour. They had become like birds of prey. Vultures. They're continually pulling and pecking each other apart. Those that preyed on others will become prey to others. Verse 10. Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. God has a kindness and a concern for his church. Even though there's a lot wrong with his church, his correcting it will be in every way based on his satisfaction in it, his love for it. He talked compassionately about the desolations of of this land. He said, many rulers, I'm sorry, many, yeah, many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. The word rulers is shepherds or pastors. Many shepherds or pastors have destroyed my vineyard. Without thinking about how much I value it or how much my interest is in it. He says, and with great disrespect and hatred, they have just stomped on what was pleasant land to me. And they've made it a barren wilderness. Verse 11. They have made it desolate. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. Nobody cares. He said the destruction was worldwide. The whole land is made desolate because nobody cares. Or, or, no, or nobody cares. Verse 12. The plunderers have come 
on all the desolate heights in the wilderness, for the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. He says, the sword devours from one end of the land to the other. There's no place to hide from God's judgment. The plunderers are everywhere. No one will have any peace. No one will escape from the disaster, nor will anybody enjoy any peace. Because when the flesh has messed up the life, when the flesh has corrupted the life, no flesh will have any peace. Only those who will have peace are those who walk in the Spirit. They can have peace because peace is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 Misery is the result of God's displeasure with sin. It's the sword of the Lord that devours. While God's people keep close to him, God protects them. Verse 13. They have sown wheat, but reaped thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but do not profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. We see here how how unable the people are of protecting themselves against the sword of the Lord. God says the people have planted wheat, but notice only thorns are growing up. They've worn themselves out. They've gone through great pains for their security and figured all of their work would pay off, but it hasn't done them any good. With all of their hard work and all of their pain, it's not going to help them one bit to pull themselves out of the pit that they dug for themselves. God says they're going to end up being ashamed of all of their effort, ashamed that they depended so much on their own planning for war and especially on their own inability or their own ability to finance the war. It takes money to fight a war. And Jesus said, no king sits down to go to war before he figures out, hey, can I afford to, to, to do it? Can I, can I win the battle? And they'll be ashamed because their silver and gold won't profit them in the day of the Lord's judgment. Sometimes the prophets delivered messages of judgment and mercy to the nations around Israel in God's name. But here's a message to all of those in general who had in their times been one way or another hurtful to God's people. They either oppressed them or triumphed in being oppressed. Notice verse 14. Thus says the Lord... Against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Here's the problem God had with the people. They were his evil neighbors. Notice he called them his evil neighbors. They were evil neighbors to his church. And what they did against it. Again, he took it as if they did it to him. So he called them his evil neighbors who should have been neighborly to Israel, but they weren't. And doesn't it seem like it's, it's the fate of good people to live among bad neighbors? They're unkind, irritating to them. And it's really bad when they're all like that. These evil neighbors of, of Israel were the Moabites, the Amorites, the Syrians, the Edomites, the Egyptians who all had been helping to corrupt God's people and draw them away from God. 
And that's why God calls, him their, calls them his evil neighbors. And now they helped to make them desolate and joined with the Chaldeans against them, the Babylonians. God is just, in, it, it, God is just, he is fair in making those things that we made sin to become trouble for us. This is God's accusation against his people. They've meddled with the inheritance that I have caused my people Israel to inherit. They unjustly took what didn't belong to them. They wickedly turned it into their own use, what was given to God's special people. He that said, touch not my anointed, also said, don't touch their inheritance. If you do, do it at your own risk. Not only the persons, but also God's people, people's belongings are under his protection. Not just God's people, but also their belongings are under his protection. Now, what action would God take against them? He said he would break the power that they had over his people, and he would force them to pay them back. He said, I will pluck out the house of Judah from among them. This would be a gracious act on God's part to, to God's people who were either taken captive by them or when they fled to them for shelter, they were arrested and made prisoners. But it would be a great loss of face, a great embarrassment to their enemies, who would be like a lion who had his prey taken away from them. The house of Judah either can't or won't make any bold attempt to get their own freedom. But God will graciously pluck them out And by his spirit will compel them to come out. And by his power, he will compel their captors to let them go like he plucked Israel out of Egypt. And he would bring them the same troubles, the same calamities they put on his people. He says, I will pluck them out of their land. Judgment begin at the house of God. But you know what? It doesn't stop there. Verses 15 and 16. Then it shall be, after I have plucked them out, that I will return and have compassion on them and bring them back, everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. And it shall be, if they will learn carefully the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. God had mercy in store for those who would turn to him. And become his people. They had seduced God's backsliding people to join them in serving idols. But he says, now if you return with my people and you join with my people in serving me, the true and the living God, then their their hostility would be forgiven by God and God's people. And they would be able to stand on the same level with God as his own people. They'd be equal. Those that carefully learn the ways of God's people will enjoy the same privilege and comforts of his people. Let's close now with verse 17. But if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. God says those who were still committed to doing their own evil ways to do their own evil thing. He says, and they don't want to be ruled by the grace of God, they will be ruined by the justice of God. And if disobedient nations will be destroyed, 
How much more will disobedient churches be destroyed because God expects better things from them? Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. This passage teaches the universal sovereignty of God. He he is ruler over all. He is ruler over every living soul. All nations, all people are under the power of his control. And he blesses those who are righteous and he punishes those who are wicked. Father, we thank you so much for this chapter, Lord. And Father, may we take it to heart, God. Verse 5, Lord. Father, as we're running with mere men, Father, Help us, Lord, when that time comes that we have to run with the horses. And Father, as we're fighting the battle in in open land, help us to fight the battle, God, when we're in the thickets in the brush. Lord, your word teaches us from Genesis to Revelation. that we will not enter the kingdom of God on an easy road. There is a cross to bear, whatever that might be. And God, help us to understand that. Help us to believe it. Father, the the days that we're living in, God is revealing that to us, God. As we see an anti-God climate in our nation, in our state, God. And the hatred for you and the hatred for Christ and the church and his word. And the laws we see being passed that come against preaching the gospel, teaching your word, standing up for righteousness sake, God. Glorifying evil, forsaking good. Calling good evil and evil good. Lord, give us The power, Father, give us the faith to walk in these these tumultuous days, Lord. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace, God. We thank you. You've given us all that we need, Lord, to live for you and to die for you, Lord. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sunday morning.